is that if you can create future consequences for present behavior, that can create an incentive to cooperate. So cooperation requires me to incur some costs now, but if I'm cooperating with someone who I'll interact with again in the future, then it's worth it for me to pay the cost of cooperating now in order to get the benefit of them being willing to cooperate with me in the future um, as long as there's a large enough likelihood that we interact again. Or even if it's with someone that I'm not going to interact with again, if other people are observing that interaction, then it affects my reputation. And so uh, it can be worth paying the cost of cooperating in order to earn a good reputation. Um, also to attract new interaction partners, to not get ostracized, all of these uh, sorts of things. Um, and so there's a lot of evidence that shows not only does this work in theory, that is there's game theory models and computer simulations showing that if you build in these kinds of future consequences, you can get either evolution to lead to cooperative agents uh, sort of dominating populations, and also learning and strategic reasoning leading to people cooperating. Um, there's also lots of behavioral experiments uh, supporting this kind of thing. So lab experiments where you bring people into the lab and you give them money and you have them uh, engage in these kind of uh, economic cooperation game type interactions. So they get the money and they choose whether to keep it for themselves or to contribute it um, to a group project that benefits other people. Um, and uh, if you make it so that future consequences exist in any of these various ways, it makes people more inclined to cooperate. And typically it actually leads to cooperation paying off and uh, actually being the, um, the best performing strategy. And so in these sorts of situations, it's not really altruistic uh, to be cooperative because the interactions are designed in a way that makes cooperating pay off. So, for example, we have a paper that shows that um, in the context of repeated interactions, uh, there's not any relationship to how altruistic people are and how, they how much they cooperate. Basically, everybody cooperates, even the selfish people. And under certain situations, selfish people can actually wind up cooperating more uh, because they're better at identifying that that's what really is going gonna, is gonna to pay off. So... This, this general class of uh, solutions to the cooperation problem that boil down to create future consequences and therefore make it self-interested in the long run to be cooperative. And so I think this kind of strategic cooperation is extremely important and explains a lot of uh, real-world cooperation and from an institution design perspective is a really important thing for people to be thinking about, like how do you set up uh, rules of interaction and sort of interaction structures and incentive structures in a way that makes uh, working for the greater good a good strategy. But it's also like it, it's, but um, at the same time that this kind of strategic cooperation is really important, uh, it's also very clearly the case that often people cooperate even when there's not a self-interested motive to do so. Um, and that sort of willingness to help strangers or to not exploit strangers is a really core uh, piece of well-functioning societies. It makes society much more efficient when you don't constantly have to be watching your back and being afraid that people are going to take advantage of you. If you can generally trust that other people are going to sort of do the right thing and you're going to do the right thing, 
it makes uh, it makes life much more efficient, um, socially efficient. That is, mm-hmm. and so uh, you have the question of okay, well, strategic incentives can motivate people to cooperate, but also clearly people keep cooperating even when there's not incentives to do so. At least they cooperate to some extent, and so uh, there's a question of what motivates people to do that, and. Uh, a lot of the way behavioral economists and psychologists talk about that is at a sort of proximate psychological level saying things like, well, it feels good to cooperate with other people. You care about others, and so that's why you're willing to pay costs to help them. You have social preferences, uh, things like that. Um, And I believe that, and I think that that is clearly true just from personal introspection as well as interaction with other people. But I'm interested in a slightly different question, which is sort of where do those social preferences come from? Like, why is it that we care about other people, that we have those kinds of feelings? Um, And also at a sort of cognitive level, how does that actually get implemented? And uh, another way of asking this question is basically, uh, are we predisposed to be selfish and we only get ourselves to be cooperative and work for the greater good by exerting self-control and rational deliberation and saying no, override those selfish impulses and do the right thing? Or are we predisposed towards cooperating? Um, And then in these situations where it doesn't actually pay, if we stop and think about it, sort of rationality and deliberation leads us to be selfish by uh, overriding uh, the sort of impulse to, to be a good person and help other people. Um, most people, both uh, in the scientific world and among lay people, uh, are of the opinion of the former, which is that we are by default selfish and we have to use uh, sort of rational deliberation to make ourselves do the right thing. Um, but uh, I tried to think about this question from um, a sort of theoretical principled position to say what should it be, like from a perspective of either evolution or strategic reasoning. Like, which of these uh, two uh, stories actually makes more sense? Um, and should we expect to observe? And so if you, if you think about it that way, the key question is, where do our intuitive defaults come from? Uh, and there's all of this work in behavioral economics and psychology on heuristics and biases that uh, suggests that what these kinds of intuitions are is they're usually rules of thumb for the behavior that typically works well. So it makes sense. If you're going to have something as your default, what should you choose as your default? You should choose the thing that works well, um, and that, that works well in general. And then in any particular situation, you might stop and say, well, does my rule of thumb actually fit this specific situation? And if not, then you can override it. And so if you think about things from that perspective, then uh, what should be the default is determined by what behavior typically works well. And in the context of cooperation, because of all of these uh, forces that I was talking about earlier, like repeated interactions and reputation consequences and things like that, uh, I would argue that it's typically in your long-run self-interest to be cooperative, at least if you're living in a society where there are good institutions and norms that prescribe cooperation or working in an organization that's like that. Um, And so you should wind up internalizing cooperation as your default response because it typically works well. And then when you find yourself in interactions where you could actually get away with being selfish, uh, your first impulse should be to cooperate like normal 
But if you stop and think about it, you might realize, oh, actually, here it's different, and uh, I should sort of overrule that kind of impulse to help and just look out for myself. In some sense, the birth of all of this work on cooperation is the Cold War, um, in that the prisoner's dilemma, which is the sort of workhorse of all of this research, was invented at uh, Rand Corporation um, as a way of thinking about uh, arms races and and Cold War uh, issues. Um, and that is the prisoner. The key idea of the prisoner's dilemma being <clears throat> there's this tension between what is unilaterally optimal versus what's jointly optimal. Uh, and so then there was the question of, okay, how do you get the prisoner's dilemma? Uh, how do you get cooperation to succeed in the prisoner's dilemma? And um, amongst evolutionary biologists uh, in the early 70s, uh, Trivers suggested the idea of reciprocal altruism. <clears throat> that is, if you... Uh, have repeated interactions, it can make cooperation advantageous in a prisoner's dilemma. And then Axelrod in the 80s um, uh, had his famous uh, prisoner's dilemma tournament where different people submitted strategies and they played against each other and they saw what won. And that really moved things forward a lot because it introduced the strategy of tit for tat, uh, which starts out by cooperating and then imitates the other person's previous action. So it's a very simple strategy that is basically just implementing the logic of reciprocity. It says, I'll do to you whatever you did to me before. And so if you know the other person is playing tit for tat, then you maximize your payoff by cooperating so that tit for tat will cooperate with you in the next period. Um, and then from there, there was a question of uh, how do you deal with mistakes? Because tit for tat is great in that it cooperates with cooperation and it punishes defection by defecting, but uh, if there's a possibility of error, such as I try to cooperate with you, but by mistake I defect, if you're playing against tit for tat, tit for tat is going to retaliate by defecting, and then you're going to get locked into a cycle of retribution. Um, and so then there was a lot of work uh, in the 90s um, on how do you sort of deal with mis correcting mistakes, and uh, Martin Novak was particularly active in that and suggested a couple of these strategies that were uh, forgiving, basically, that would... Um, with you know, either randomly forgive with some probability if the other person defected or have various other mechanisms for fixing that. Um, and then things started branching out from instead of just uh, pairwise interactions between two people, how do you support cooperation at larger scales? And there was well, that's where a lot of this work on reputation and signaling and partner choice and things like that came in. Um, and I think that that more or less brings us up to the um, fairly current times where now there's been some of this shift from interaction structures that make cooperation advantageous, like repeated interactions or reputation, to the thing that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about recently, which is this more cognitive question of uh, how does cooperation actually uh, get implemented um, because all of these models that people have been making going back to Trivers um, are uh, these sort of standard game theory type models where it, the agent just has a strategy that says, do this. Um, and there's no psychology in it. There's no cognition. Um, and so what we're trying to do in this recent work 
is bring some of the ideas from behavioral economics and cognitive psychology, the kind of stuff uh, popularized by Danny Kahneman, of this trade-off between intuitive processes that are sort of easy and fast but relatively inflexible versus deliberation, which is very flexible and sensitive to details but requires time and cognitive effort to, to employ, and sort of bringing those ideas and building them into these game theory models for evolution of cooperation. Um, so we've uh, been doing that, and uh, basically the way to think about it is that um, most of the models basically say, here is a game, what's a good strategy for it? But in real life, you need to figure out how to play a whole range of different games. Uh, that is, to the extent that these games characterize different social interactions, there's lots of different interactions that you need to have. And so we make these models where... Um, Sometimes you are having interactions that are like prisoner's dilemmas, and so it's in your self-interest to just defect. But other times you're having interactions that say are that involve future consequences. So they're repeated interactions or reputation is at stake or so on, and so it can actually be self-interested to cooperate. Uh, and so you're facing different kinds of situations, and you can have a sort of intuitive default response that's not sensitive to the type of situation. It just says cooperate or defect. And, or you can pay a cost to stop and think and say, well, which kind of situation am I actually facing? And let me tailor my strategy accordingly. Um, and then you can ask in a setup like that, what are optimal strategies where optimal means uh, a Nash equilibrium in game theory terms or a strategy that's favored by evolution? Uh, or by learning. And what we see is that if you're in a world where future consequences are significant, are, are, sorry, what we see is that if you're in a world where future consequences are sufficiently common, so that usually it's a good idea to be cooperating, then the optimal strategy has as its intuitive default cooperate, because typically that's going to work out well, but is sometimes willing to pay to deliberate if it has, you know, if it's not too costly to deliberate, say in situations where you have enough time or you're not that tired or whatever, um, then you'll stop and, and deliberate. And if you realize that it's actually a one-shot game, that strategy overrides its default to cooperate and instead switches to defection. And so we see this strategy that is intuitively cooperative but uses deliberation to defect in one-shot situations where it can get away with defecting, these strategies are optimal and are favored by natural selection. And so that's a clear sort of theoretical prediction, but <clears throat> uh, I spend, I sort of straddle the worlds of these formal models that make predictions and then running actual experiments to try and test the predictions. Um, and so there's, over the last five or six years, uh, a, there's emerged a big body of actual empirical evidence around this question. Um, we had this paper in 2012 uh, that sort of brought a lot of attention to this question. Um, <clears throat> and what we did is we had people play uh, one of these games. There's a group of four people. They each get some money. They choose how much to keep for themselves and how much to contribute to a common project that benefits the other people in the group. Um, and then we experimentally induced them to either rely more on intuition or rely more on a deliberation. And some of the experiments, we did that by forcing some of the people to decide quickly 
and forcing the other people to stop and think about the decision beforehand. In other experiments, we did it by sort of uh, having people remember a time in their life where they followed their intuition and it worked out well, or a time that they carefully reasoned and it worked out well, which kind of induced them to trust more their intuitive response or their deliberative response. And in both cases, we found that as predicted by the theory, uh, the people that were made to be more intuitive cooperated more, and the people that were made to be more deliberative wound up being more selfish and keeping more of the money for themselves. And then since that initial work, uh, there's been a lot of interest in this, and I just did, um, I just had a paper published that did a meta-analysis of many experiments run by different labs um, asking the same question in slightly different ways. Uh, and what we found was um, totally consistent with the theory and with the initial results where in situations where there's no future consequence, so it's in your clear self-interest to be selfish, then intuition leads to more cooperation than deliberation. And this was 51 experiments from 20 different labs with more than 15,000 participants. Um, and it was a, a reasonably big effect size, too. On average, there was like 20% more contributed uh, in the intuitive condition relative to the more deliberative condition. Um, and so that suggests that when self-interest clearly favors not cooperating, deliberation makes you less cooperative. But then there was also a, a set of other experiments where there actually are future consequences. And so it actually can be in your self-interest to cooperate in order to get other people to cooperate with you. And there, deliberation doesn't undermine cooperation. Because when you stop and think, you realize, oh, I should actually cooperate because it's in my self-interest. In these experiments, they're done in the using economic games. So in the sort of experimental economics uh, tradition where by and large, the games are framed in a very abstract way uh, about money. And so the way it works is the they sort of try and avoid words like cooperation and defection and things like that. And instead, just each person gets some endowment of money. You choose how much to keep for yourself uh, and how much to put into this common project. All of the contributions are doubled and split equally among the four people. What do you want to contribute? And so it's framed very neutrally uh, to try and avoid sort of uh, priming effects induced by one particular context or another. Um, we have a couple of papers where we looked at what happened if you try and create a competitive frame. And so in these experiments, we told them, we still describe the game in the same way, but we say you're competing against the other people in your group, and the person that earns the most is the winner. Um, and there wasn't actually any monetary prize, but it's just sort of symbolically framing it as competition. And we actually found that that didn't change things that much. The effects that we find in these studies are effects on average, um, you know, averaged over these 15,000 people. Um, and there is a lot of variation across individuals. And there certainly is evidence of people who, uh, after thinking about it, continue to, to be cooperative and who don't have their uh, sort of cooperative impulses undermined. Um, I think that the thing that there's not that much evidence of is people whose default is to be selfish and then when they stop and think about it, be like, oh, well, actually, I should cooperate. But I think that there's a lot of people whose first impulse is to cooperate and then even when they realize they're in a one-shot anonymous setting, they continue to cooperate 
because they have either because they have explicitly held moral values that say cooperating is good or being selfish is bad, or because they anticipate having sort of intuitive emotional responses afterwards that are negative. For example, a lot of people will say, I thought about it and I decided that I should still cooperate because if I didn't, I knew I would feel guilty afterwards. And so that sort of thing I see as the kind of intuitive or emotional system hijacking deliberation and saying, even though you could make more money, I'm going to force you to be cooperative because I'm going to make you feel bad afterwards about it. Martin Novak started working on uh, cooperation in the early 90s. And there were sort of three major categories, I would say, where uh, Martin did a lot of work. One was on understanding uh, the importance of forgiveness uh, for dealing with mistakes um, so that you don't derail sort of productive, repeated cooperative relationships. If the other person makes a mistake, uh, you should be a fair amount of forgiving. So there's a strategy, generous tit for tat, and then Wednesday lose shift that are these strategies that correct errors and deal with that. Um, then he also did a lot of work on reputation and what he calls indirect reciprocity, understanding how you can get cooperation, not just between pairs of people, but in groups. Um, so if I cooperate with you, that will make another person uh, more likely to cooperate with me. And so this same logic of reciprocity works in this more distributed setting. The, uh, the internet and the sort of age of social media really does open up uh, these vast new possibilities for reputation systems on a much bigger scale than was possible before. And I think of Yelp uh, as a great example of this. It's a distributed reputation system. Um, in the, like, I think of one of the th ways I think of Yelp is the tourist trap killer. Because the idea of a tourist trap is they're like crappy restaurants that uh, can still get a lot of business because it's only ever one-shot games. It's a tourist comes up, they go, they go to the restaurant, they're like, ugh, that was terrible, but then they never go there again, and nobody, they don't know the other people that are going there, and so there's no reputational consequences. But Yelp allows us to build a distributed memory mm -hmm. where you can leave your uh, <clears throat> bad impression of things for everyone else to see. And so it really, I think, is a, a major force for basically for good, for like making uh, uh, businesses perform better mm -hmm. um, by creating a distributed reputation system. Novak was doing all this different work on cooperation. And when I started graduate school, uh, I um, took his class and then I like asked to join his lab. Um, and uh, my background before that had been doing computational models of electrical properties of heart cells. Uh, which was not amazingly interesting. Uh, and when I sort of found out about the prisoner's dilemma and evolution of cooperation, I just totally fell in love with it. I was like, this is so cool. This is like so much cooler than anything that I've seen before. Uh, as, as someone doing uh, game theory and uh, you know, behavioral science, uh, it's sort of embarrassing that my dad is an applied math professor uh, and my mom's a therapist. And so this is the only possible way to exactly combine their two interests was a sort of a mathematical and quantitative analysis of human behavior. Um, so I grew up in Ithaca. My dad was a professor at Cornell. Um, and I went to Cornell undergrad. I started as a computer science major. Uh, and I did three semesters of computer science and uh, realized that at least at Cornell, computer science was about 
doing math and not a write, about writing computer programs, which is what I liked. And so I switched into biology and I did uh, a senior thesis in computational biology, math model of electrical properties of um, electrical transfer and photosynthesis, so like plant biology. Uh, and I only ever took one psychology class in undergrad, which was psychology of music, because I played in rock bands. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. And so I did a second senior thesis in psych like basically computer analysis of musical melodies and things like that. Um, and then I worked at a biotech startup for a couple of years making math models of electrical properties of heart cells. Uh, and then I started my PhD at Harvard in systems biology, which is where I connected with Novak and got into cooperation. Um, and at that juncture, I was faced with this question of, you know, in grad school, what do you want to study? And I was coming out of the biomedical world uh, for, at this startup. Um, and I was in a program where basically everyone was doing biomedical stuff and health-oriented research, lots of cancer research. Um, and at the time that I entered grad school, that same year, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And so I was very much sort of feeling like I was in a place where I could do work that was really relevant uh, to, to these problems. Um, but I just so fell in love with the prisoner's dilemma and cooperation that I was compelled to study that. It was, I was just, it was, for me, it was very like much a calling where I'm just like, this is just so interesting. I can't stop thinking about this. This is what I'm going to uh, spend my, my life working on. Um, and I uh, just sort of, I like fell in love with the topic in a way that made it super easy to spend all my time thinking and working on it because I just really loved it. Um, but I have sort of carried with me this understanding that I went down the road that I enjoyed more than the road that seemed sort of most useful. Um, and a lot of what I've taken from that is the desire to try and also do something useful with the work that I'm doing on cooperation. So in addition to doing these kind of very abstract mathematical models and only slightly less abstract uh, experimental economics uh, studies in the lab, I've also been trying to work with real world uh, organizations, uh, companies and government organizations to apply the uh, sort of lessons that we've learned from the theory and the lab in the real world. Um, and to that end, I've started the Applied Cooperation Team uh, with two economists, Erez Yoeli at Harvard and Sion Banat at Swarthmore, um, where we work with um, all these different kinds of organizations to uh, try and promote real-world cooperation. It's sort of like pro-social consulting. Um, like, we don't take money, we just get uh, sort of, we want data and we try and publish papers with, com with what comes out of it but doing things, trying to uh, increase charitable donations, increase uh, sort of conservation, decrease environmental impact, things like that. Uh, an interesting feature of all of this work around how to promote cooperation, uh, which basically all boils down to create future consequences for current actions, mm -hmm. is all of those types of mechanisms can be used to enforce uh, cooperative behavior that benefits others, but it can equally well be used to enforce any kind of behavior. And so in some sense, this is in, in the sort of social norms that establish a social norm for something and say, I'll only help you or cooperate with you if you follow the social norm. That can be a tool that promotes sort of, you know, the greater good if, this, if the social norms are norms that prescribe 
you know, pro-social behavior, but it can also reinforce all kinds of negative behavior if norms prescribe the negative behavior. And so like reputation, there's nothing inherently pro-social promoting about reputation effects. It's just a tool to get people to do whatever you want them to do. And so all of these tools uh, can be, you know, basically can cut both ways. Thaler and Sunstein's nudge idea uh, is connected to all these kinds of things that I'm interested in in a couple of different ways. One part is the applied angle. It's saying trying to use these sort of insights from behavioral science to influence people. Um, and then again, and then you have to have the question of what are you trying to get people to do and what you are using the nudges for may not be what I would want them to be used for. And so there, you know, this, for any of this applied stuff, there's, this is an issue that like we're creating tools and then different people are going to use the tools to do different things. Um, and, you know, I don't really know uh, what to do about that other than to say, I hope that the people use the tools the way that I would want them to use them. But, uh, yeah, that's, you know, the nature of, of creating tools. Uh, th there's also an important sort of scientific distinction between the actual nudge stuff, like what Thaler meant by nudge and most of what I am doing, which is that the nudges were supposed to not uh, fundamentally change the incentive structure that nudges are gentle that is the whole idea of nudge is you don't actually change someone's action set or change the payoffs associated with things you just present things in a way that makes certain attract uh, options seem more attractive or whatever um, whereas a lot of the stuff that we're doing with uh, making behavior observable to other people, create, you know, making reputation consequences, things like that, that fundamentally changes the strategic nature of the decision. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it's more heavy-handed than the nudge stuff. I think that there's been a lot of interest on this work that I've been doing, applying this intuition versus deliberation framework to cooperation, because in some sense, the question is ancient like it goes at least back to aristotle has been having these discussions about you know is the are we by default cooperative or by default selfish um but uh i think what i am sort of tr bringing to it is trying to actually get real empirical evidence to answer this question rather than either philosophizing about it or uh, making sort of abstract theoretical models uh, to try and actually say, well, what are how are ways we can actually look at this in in the lab, um, and so leveraging a lot of this uh, system one, system two, dual process kind of work that Kahneman uh, has you know been one of the leaders on. There's this whole set of tools now for exploring these things in the lab, um, and so. Uh, the fact that we did this and we come up with these results that people found very counterintuitive uh, because most people have this expectation that we are by default selfish. Uh, I think there's evidence that actually there's a lot of situations where we're by default cooperative uh, has captured a lot of uh, interest and created a lot of controversy because it goes contrary to many people's preconceptions. Mm -hmm. When I was at Harvard, in addition to working with Martin Novak, someone that I spent a lot of time with was Josh Green in a psych department. And Josh is actually the one that introduced me to all of these ideas about intuition and deliberation and you know cognitive processes. Um, and so Josh has done a lot of work that is very uh, related to the things that I care about and was sort of inspirational for, uh, you know, he hasn't thought that much about cooperation, more about these sort of uh, moral 
dilemmas, but it was sort of getting exposed to that there is what led me to think about, oh, I should apply this set of tools to understand cooperation, which is the thing that I, I care the most about. Um, and someone else who was in Josh's lab at the same time I was, who's doing extremely cool work in this domain is Fiery Cushman, um, now happily also at Harvard. Um, and Fiery is doing really fascinating uh, work on um, understanding lots of different kinds of pro-social behaviors from a cognitive perspective, looking at sort of model-free versus model-based reasoning. So situations where you have a clear a, like model of the world that you, you know, thinks through all the details versus a sort of general, just kind of reinforcement learning based, um, like no model, no explicit understanding, just, oh, that feels good. I like to do that uh, kind of framework. Um, there are also some people in psychology and sociology that have been talking about ideas like this um, in a kind of abstract sense for a long time, like Toshio Yamagishi is this very uh, influential Japanese uh, sociologist um, who has been had these ideas around exchange heuristics and people sort of treating relationships as if there's important exchange as if, as if they were relationships that involved back and forth and a possibility for exchange even when they don't um, and also a lot of the evolutionary psychologists people like Tubi and Cosmides um, have for a long time been making arguments about uh, people, psychology, carrying around uh, imprints of earlier uh, behaviors. Um, they think about it more in a sort of biological, like hard-coded modules in the brain for different kinds of things. And I more uh, think of these things in terms of learning and um, reinforcement of basically developing different kinds of rules of thumb for different social situations. Uh, another person that's very relevant for these kinds of things is Gigerenzer. Um, with these kind of uh, ideas of, of heuristics and rules of thumb being useful and encoding uh, sort of typically you know, useful behaviors or, or being advantageous. And so a lot of one way of looking at what I'm doing is taking a lot of those ideas and looking at it in the social context and how those things work in the context of interpersonal relationships rather than just individual choice. A big question in a lot of this, uh, a lot of this work, and in terms of thinking about the intuitions, what your intuitions are, is some people think of them in terms of biologically hard-coded instincts that were the result of evolution. Other people think of them as learned heuristics or rules of thumb, and uh, I think in different domains, both of those things are real. Uh, but in terms of uh, cooperation, it seems to me much more likely that it's going to be sort of learned rules of thumb, because if you are going to evolve an optimal agent, whether cooperating or defecting is the best, uh, is sort of adaptive, depends on what the other people are doing. There's nothing that makes cooperation across the board payoff maximizing. It's just that things like reputation and repetition can make it so that if everybody else is cooperative, you should also be cooperative. And so it seems like you don't want to hard code agents to be cooperative. You want to evolve agents that can learn what kind of environment they're in and adjust their strategy accordingly. So I'm right now I'm an associate professor at Yale uh, in psychology department with also appointments in economics and in management. And uh, sort of straddling those areas is very much uh, 
you know, sort of who I am. I think of myself as a behavioral scientist. Fundamentally, I'm interested in understanding behavior. Um, and I think actually the fact that my training was in biology, which isn't related to any of the things that I'm doing now, has been very useful in terms of uh, having me not be sort of raised and indoctrinated with a particular social sciences way of thinking about things. But instead, I sort of came to all of these questions sort of fairly late in my training and so was able to say, what about the way psychologists do things is cool and makes sense? What about the way economists do things cool and makes sense? Let me try and sort of put those together. Um, and so in terms of uh, looking forward, I'm getting more and more interested in and invested in these sort of real world applications. And so I feel like in the next phase of my career, that's something that I particularly want to invest in is, um, you know, how do we do something useful uh, with the things that we're learning and how do we find, uh, not just in the labs, we've got lots of lab experiments that prevent, we've got lots of lab experiments that present evidence for these kinds of theories we're developing, but it's a long way from these very stripped down abstract lab situations to the mess of the real world. My vision of who is gonna be interested in this and interested in using these ideas uh, in the real world is on the one hand governments, um, since regardless of their uh, particular political leanings, I think um, in general governments are interested in trying to improve the welfare of their citizens. And there's disagreements about how exactly to do that, but that's generally uh, the goal of a lot of countries. And so I think the these ideas that we have been developing are very useful for um, lots of different levels of government. So that's one uh, that's one set of people that I hope will be interested in this. And the other is uh, large companies and organizations that are interested in. Um, how do they get their workforce to be most efficient? Because um, if you think about the way companies work, it's the exact same kind of cooperation problem where what you're trying to do is you're trying to, in the best of all worlds, you would have each of your employees w operating in the way that would be best for the organization as a whole. So these same tools for sort of aligning individual incentives and collective incentives are super important for organizations uh, sort of maximizing their uh, pro productivity. Another direction that I've recently gotten uh, very interested in, and this has really been driven by my brilliant graduate student, Jillian Jordan, is signaling um, and the role that signaling plays in a lot of social behaviors. Uh, mm -hmm. In addition to wanting to help other people, uh, even when there's no personal benefit to doing so, uh, there's also a lot of evidence, both from the lab and from Twitter and things like that, that people uh, also... Um, are motivated to sanction bad behavior, punish wrongdoers, condemn wrongdoers, shame wrongdoers, or people they see as wrongdoers, um, even when they're not personally in, uh, affected by the wrongdoing. And so there's been a lot of interest in understanding why people engage in this kind of punishing behavior. Uh, and so we uh, have been advocating the idea that uh, at least in part, that kind of behavior can be a form of signaling. Um, and in particular, if you punish someone for doing something or you condemn someone for doing something, that's a way to signal that you don't do the behavior uh, that is being engaged in. And so we have these laboratory experiments. We show that if people punish selfishness, uh, other people assume that they're more trustworthy. 
Um, but that's only true if they don't have a better way of assessing trustworthiness, mm -hmm. um, which suggests that the punishment really is serving as a signal rather than, you know, some, some sort of other function. Um, and so I think that this can explain uh, a lot of behavior, particularly a lot of the public shaming and condemnation behavior, um, where you can get these kind of runaway uh, situations where there's where punishment and condemnation is vastly uh, disproportionate to how bad the uh, action is. Where if you were punishing for sort of some kind of real social good target, uh, you know, it's clearly much too much punishment. But it makes sense if you think that a lot of the punishment and condemnation is actually just signaling. Then you don't really care about the consequences. You care about showing something about yourself. The kinds of experiments we use to explore this. Um, are there are these two-stage experiments where in the first stage uh, you see someone act selfishly towards a third person and then you have some money and you have the choice to either punish that person for being selfish or not. And then you go on to a second stage where someone else has the choice to trust you or not and by trust this means they have some money and they choose how much to send to you whatever they send to you gets tripled and then you decide how much to give back. So if they think that you're going to be fair and send money back to them, it's worth it for them to transfer the money to you. You can both benefit. But if they think you're selfish, then they wouldn't transfer to you because they would expect you to just keep uh, whatever you get. And so our lab and also several other labs have found that people trust punishers more than non-punishers. So if I see you punish someone, so if in the first stage I punish someone else for being selfish, then in the second stage this new person is more likely to send money to me expecting that I will be trustworthy and return the money. Um, and then what we showed is not only is there this expectation, but that actually motivates behavior. So people are more likely to engage in punishment in the first stage when that's going to be a useful means for them signaling in the second stage uh, compared to when it's not. So it suggests that a real motive for this kind of behavior is actually trying to signal your trustworthiness. Uh, there's another interesting dimension of signaling that relates to uh, all of my work on intuition and cooperation, which is... Uh, the argument that I've made uh, thus far has been the reason people are intuitively cooperative uh, is that intuition gives you this sort of rule of thumb that's uh, fast and easy to apply. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of a good, just like baseline to say, oh, I should be cooperative. But we actually have a recent paper, again, with my extremely talented student, Jillian Jordan, um, that uh, provides experimental evidence that another motivation for behaving in a kind of intuitive way is reputational uh, benefits and signaling, uh, which is to say that if I see you cooperate without thinking about it, without taking into account the details, then I know that uh, you're not going to be easily swayed by um, incentives. So if I say, well, you just cooperate without thinking it, whether it's in your self-interest, then it, if I interact with you later, I can count on you to cooperate, even if it turned out to be costly to do so. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I see you stop, carefully consider, and say, oh yes, okay, I'll, I'll help you, then I know, well, next time you might not actually help me. Um, and so the uh, desire to signal that you are a trustworthy partner and therefore you know, someone good to interact with can motivate you to cooperate in an uncalculating way uh, to, to broadcast your trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. And I think that this actually relates uh, to, um, is, is a sort of broadly applicable thing that when people see others being calculating, 
they don't trust them um, for this sort of reason. And a place that we're seeing a lot of discussion this, of this right now is in politics. And I think a lot of it is applying this kind of idea from interpersonal relationships where if you ask a friend to do a favor for you and they say, well, how long is it going to take? How much of a pain is it going to be? And then they're like, okay, fine, I'll do you the favor. 